Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Republicans in the House recently struck a deal with the Biden administration to raise the debt ceiling. But Washington debates over discretionary spending shouldn't overshadow the hard conversations we need to have about America's entitlement spending. Andrew Big joins the episode of Political Economy to discuss his ideas for Social Security reform. Andrew Biggs is a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studied Social Security reform, state and local government pensions, and public sector pay and benefits. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, pleasure to be with you. Thanks. There are now, again, conversations, certainly among Republicans, about needing to trim future Social Security spending. We have some pretty big deficits, historically high deficits. And uh, so, again, there's conversation about doing something to Social Security. What is sort of the state of the debate here in 2023? The state of the debate on Social Security today is dire. I'll, <laughs> I'll say that. Um, but I mean, it, just, just to wind back to, to where you started, it, it is surprising in a way that Social Security isn't always in the news in the sense that, you know, it's the biggest federal spending program, you know, bigger than Medicare or the military. The Social Security payroll tax, that 12.4% tax, that's the biggest tax that most people actually pay, bigger than the income tax. Social Security benefits are the biggest source of income for most retirees. And we've literally known for 40 years that Social Security needed to be reformed. It was 40 years ago when we uh, did the 1983 Social Security reforms. And almost immediately after that, these sort of long-term deficits started creeping back in. You know, we've known... You know, since the ni- about 1990, that the trust fund would run out somewhere in the mid 2030s. So this is this sort of slow-moving demographic problem. But the the the, the real issue is that as slow-moving as the demographic problem may be, Congress is even slower moving. You know, we've gone 40 years without fixing a, a problem that's entirely predictable. Um, the, the last big push on Social Security reform is the George W. Bush administration. I worked there, and that was a that was a time. I mean, they didn't they didn't get anything done, but you know, Bush was pushing very hard on it. Both sides were very well informed. They understood the issues. They understood the program. Today, Social Security as a policy debate has been dormant for quite some time. Your average member of Congress would struggle to describe how the federal government's largest program works. You know, they have some points off their three by five cards, but the sort of the subtleties of how the program works and the choices we face, and the costs and benefits of each, those are largely lost on policymakers today. Um, at the political level, you know, of candidates running for president is actually even worse. So you know, this is the point where I'm starting to get worried about whether we end up having a hard landing or a soft landing on this issue. Are there serious plans out there that you could, could that you could see forming the basis of some sort of agreement. Right now, I think the answer to that is no. Um, the the sort of the two main plans that are out there. There is um, a, a proposal. It's called the Social Security Twenty One Hundred Act. It's been co sponsored by I think maybe around ninety percent of of House Democrats. So it's as close to a consensus reform bill among Democrats as you're, as you're ever going to find. 
And that not only pays full promise benefits to everyone in perpetuity, it actually increases benefits for everyone. And it finances that by you know, raising taxes and raising taxes some more. The, the issue there is it, it, they've also gotten a bandwagon. Oh, we like this bill and all that. The reason the Social Security 2100 Act never came up for sort of a committee markup when Democrats control the House or, you know, much less going up for a full vote is that they know that, that raising taxes that much is a political loser, just as fixing the system entirely by cutting benefits is a political loser. Now, if you're at a period where you don't have to do anything, it's just much easier politically to kick the can down the road. There is some activity happening, uh, an attempt at a bipartisan plan. This is Senator Cassidy's Republican from Louisiana, and then uh, Senator King, who's an independent from Maine, who caucuses with, with Democrats. And, you know, on, on paper, that's what you want to see. You want to see, start at the, the middle and build out. The problem with the plan that they're talking about is the foundation of it is borrow essentially a trillion and a half dollars, hopefully at low interest rates, invest that money in stocks, hopefully with high returns, and fund Social Security off the difference. And this is a, you know, as an individual, if you have not saved enough for retirement, the solution is not borrow a lot of money and put it in stocks. You know, th this is a practice. It's essentially the worst practice of state and local government pensions, of your Illinois, New Jersey's, borrow a lot of money, you know, leveraged investing. It's 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 just crazy. I thought we call that's that's those are laboratories of democracy in yes. action. Federal <laughs> government learning from the state level, but perhaps not learning the right lesson. Yeah, it's they basically let's take the worst practice from state and local government pensions and use that for Social Security. So in yeah, there's some other stuff to the plan, but the thing that's worrying is that the part of the the reason that plan has not gotten more co-sponsors isn't because of let's let's borrow a trillion and a half and put it in, in stocks. It's because it would raise the retirement age, make some other changes. The borrowing to invest part is actually the popular part of the plan. So I mean, it just shows where we are, where it's, you know, Congress, I mean, the, the argument for a plan like that is Congress can't do any better. But this is it's just like McDonald's can't make hamburgers. It's, you know, entitlement programs are not some peripheral activity of the federal government. They're basically what the federal government does. We take money from young people, we give it to old people, and we got to figure out how to handle that. And you know, the the, the dysfunction, the inability to reform these plans is very sort of particular to the US government. Other countries have exactly the same problems, you know, demographic issues of aging populations, so on and so forth. They have largely managed to fix their programs. We've gone 40 years without doing it. So it's not just a reflection on the program or the problems, it's a reflection on our, our political system, the quality of governance that we have. I want to ask you about maybe some of those uh, international fixes in a moment, but what if you could just, just uh, describe fiscal straits and the fiscal deadline that is uh it is coming up in sort of clear terms for the audience what i mean what is the 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 the, the sort of the financial challenge um that we face well for about the past 10 years social security has been running you know payroll tax deficits you collect money through payroll taxes that money goes straight out the door to pay benefits um since about 2010, we've been running deficits. And to finance those deficits, we redeem bonds held in the Social Security Trust Fund. And, you know, there's all sorts of arguments. Is it real or not? But the, the reality is, you know, 
those bonds exist, they're being honored. But that drives up deficits in the rest of the government because they have to borrow money to repay the money they borrowed from Social Security. Now, so we're paying full benefits now, but Social Security is already a drag on the budget. That's just going to continue and get larger. By 2034, when the trust fund runs out, you're looking at sort of $300 billion a year transferred from the, the general fund, you know, essentially income taxes to Social Security. When the trust fund runs out, though, Social Security has no legal right to call on those revenues anymore. Social Security is, at least on paper, what, what is it? And how much is the transfer right now? Um, I wouldn't bet my life on it. But I think it's around $200 billion. So it's a lot of money. I mean, the, the, you know, this is, you know, people sometimes understate the size of the Social Security deficit. You know, they'll say, oh, well, it's a modest deficit. It's a manageable problem. When, you know, when you're the 800 pound gorilla of the federal government, even a seemingly small problem is a big one. You know, long term Social Security is underfunded by between 20 and 25 percent. So, again, when you're the, the, the biggest federal program, that's a problem. Think of a reform package. There's roughly half tax increases, half benefit cuts. You could um, say raising taxes, raise the taxable maximum salary, which is currently 160000 raise that to 300000 That's a big tax increase of people in that um, income range. Raise the payroll tax rate by about a percentage point from you know, 12 and a half to 13 and a half. On the benefit side, raise the retirement age. Uh, cut cost of living adjustments, cut benefits for higher income people. You had to do all of those things together and more to make the system solvent. The problem is any one of those changes is politically infeasible. So we're really in a box. But once the trust fund runs out, the law says you cut benefits. The reality is we're never going to do that. We're just going to borrow the money or do whatever we have to do to keep you know the checks arriving in mailboxes. But when you look at Social Security, then in the context of the rest of the federal budget was also in deficit. This is where the hard landing issue comes in. You know, you, you, you can't simply borrow forever, even if you're the United States. Um, you know, at some point, the financial markets say, I, you know, I'm afraid of inflation. I'm afraid of default risk. I'm going to put my money somewhere else. And when that happens, you got a whole world of hurt. So it's it, so you know, it, it would be helpful to know what that date is, because that's date is yes. when we get some reform package. Sure. It's well, the, I mean, the, the insolvency date is 2034. So you'd say, OK, you got to do something by then. But the date when the fiscal crisis happens, that's a matter of market psychology. It's like a bank run. You don't want to be the last guy out the door. Um, and I mean, I, I'm on the financial. It could be 2054. It could be. uh Sure. Two years from now, it could be seventy-five <laughs> years from yeah. now. We 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 don't know, so we're kind of running running a risk. You know, I'm I'm on the financial oversight board handling Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. I was put there largely because of pension issues. You know, their pensions are all broke, but you know they could borrow at reasonable rates, kind of right up to the end. Greece could borrow at reasonable rates, right up to the end. It's it just flips. And you don't know when that's going to happen. So it's it you know the day is coming. It'd be nice to have some certainty. But what Congress needs to do is really just act more quickly on this. It's really sort of our political problems in microcosm. Here it is a program which is sort of absolutely fundamental to what the federal government does uh, in the 21st century. And to not do it really does say something pretty, pretty powerful and pretty negative uh, about our 
simple ability to govern this country. If you can, it's a great sort of litmus, litmus test for a lot of things. Um, I know you have some ideas for reform, but uh, before we get to those, is, is there a common thread to what other sort of rich countries do to handle this problem? Well, I mean, there, obviously there's, you know, there's a lot of countries out there. They're all, you know, they're, they're all unique in their own ways. I tend to look at countries that are similar to sort of, you know, Anglo countries, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. And the, the reason I do that is because we, we just have a different idea or different ideas from the role of government and households and society, you know, versus people living in France or Luxembourg or whatever. It's just, it's just a different game we're playing, but it's, it's not that different from these other, you know, countries that have this sort of common heritage to us. What they tend to do is they don't have social security programs that are really like ours. What they tend to do is focus their resources much more on preventing poverty in old age. And so they have a better safety net against old age poverty than social security provides. But then they the like sort of the maximum benefits they pay, the 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 the, the top end is a lot lower. Um, and so they, they leave much more to households to save for retirement on their own. So the poverty protection side is the government's problem. It's what you call income replacement, putting aside enough money to maintain my previous standard of living. That's what households do. And, you know, a place like Australia, they sign everybody up for a retirement plan. You know, and, that, and that's great. In the U.S., I mean, the maximum Social Security benefit this year for one person retiring the normal retirement age is over $43,000. Compared to other countries, that's two to three times higher in real terms than what UK, Canada, Australia, or New Zealand are paying. It's just way higher. And the, the, the Social Security funding problem, the reason Social Security is expensive isn't because it's a safety net. It's because it does so much more than a safety net. And it's it, it's a very weird dynamic we have here where we're a supposedly free market country. We hate those socialists. But, yeah, if you cut my forty three thousand uh, dollar retirement benefit from the federal government, then you know I'm going to fight you. on it. And, you know, I understand the sentiments people like I paid in and all that. But the reality is we can't just keep paying more and more and more to retirees who, to be honest, the data show are the richest retirees in the history of the world ever. I mean, the median U.S. retiree has the highest disposable income in the world, you know, higher than Switzerland, higher than Scandinavia. We're rich people. And so at, at some point, you kind of make the conclusion, we can scale back these benefits for these rich retirees in order to leave money for all the other things the government does. But we, we don't have the political maturity to have those kinds of discussions anymore. And I think if you look back to the Clinton administration, he did town hall meetings, which are in retrospect, you say, this is fantastic stuff. The openness of the discussion. President Bush's was a little more you know, political of his point of view, but he had the discussion right now, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side. President Biden and former President Trump have almost precisely the same positions on Social Security. We're never going to cut your benefits, but I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to finance it. No, that doesn't get you very far. So we're just we're just not a very mature way of handling these issues. And you would think that we're not, you know, a less moral, loving, caring people than the Australians. Well, we may be, but we're not that much less loving. <laughs> Mod no, modestly at most. Modestly. No, it's just in, in these other countries, they have maintained their programs, full support for them. People get it. 
it's and one reason they maintain them is because it's not super expensive. I mean, Australia is paying 25% less for old age benefits than we are today. And their costs are going to remain level or go down in the future while ours go up. So, you know, there, there is the issue of public support, just of how much the stupid thing costs. <laughs> but you, know, you can also look at means tested benefits in other federal programs, Medicaid, things like that. Those have all risen incredibly. So the idea we won't do this for low income people, I think, is false. An interesting angle on this, though, is if you go back to the founding of Social Security back in 1935, you know, people say, well, it's, you know, the issue is we can't have a program for the poor. Um, Chris Pope from the Manhattan Institute has done some really neat historical work on this. So what he found is, you know, at that point in time in Congress, the balance of power on Social Security was held by Southern Democrats. The two committee chairs in the House and Senate had both had fathers who fought in the Civil War and you know, not for the winning side, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and, they, you know, newspapers were just were were. Frank of saying you know, these Southern newspapers saying, if we pay everybody the same benefit, like the UK was doing at the time, you know, these Negroes are going to sit on their porches and not do any work, and we can't have that. And so we ended up with this system. There's no minimum benefit like other countries do. It pays, it, it leaves people in poverty who need the help, and then it pays tons of money to people who don't need the help. And so it wasn't just this philosophical issue of rich versus poor. There was this race angle in there as well. And I'm just not sure why we should cement that in place as if it's some something sacred. It, it really isn't. You know, there is a solution to this that protects people in old age, does it affordably. We can get people saving for retirement, you know, universal 401ks, things like that. As public policy problems go, you know, compared to healthcare or education or infrastructure, this is really an easy one to solve. And if we can't solve this, there's a you know what can we solve? And just just to uh, uh, be clear about because I know you have a plan and you kind of give you kind of uh, outlined it in broad strokes just to make it clear about what you would propose. Sure. Um, in a recent AEI book called American Renewal, it it sort of outlined you know policy proposals and a range of issues, and I covered the the chapter on Social Security and retirement. I think it's important to see them together. Now, what I outlined is something similar to the retirement system you get in Australia or New Zealand, where you have a, a universal flat dollar benefit that goes to all retirees. It's you, you get the benefit based on you know, however much you worked or contributed in the past. And usually it's financed from general tax revenues, meaning, meaning income taxes. So it's not a payroll tax finance thing. It's modest, but it literally guarantees you will not retire in poverty. Now, on top of that, both countries automatically enroll people in, in uh, retirement plans at their workplace. So it means we have to make sure everybody's offered a 401k or pension at work, and then we automatically sign them up for it. If you do that, this problem is essentially solved. You know, it's because you're preventing poverty for the people who can't afford to save, who, who are out of the workforce for some reason, and you're enabling people to save on top of that. You're facilitating the savings. What you're not doing is just saying all that savings for middle and upper income people has to go into the government via tax you don't want to pay, go into some trust fund you don't think is going to get repaid, be funneled through some benefit form that you don't understand and then come back to you later. You know, there are simpler ways of doing this. If we want to require people to save, just require them to save. The problem is 
that uh, people on the left don't like the focus of benefits. They really like the idea of simply spending more on everybody. I mean, Bernie Sanders' plan, the biggest benefit increases in dollar terms go to rich people. I mean, he would raise taxes by huge amounts and pay a lot of it back to the same people who pay the taxes. Republicans are strange on it in the sense they don't want to raise taxes, which you know mathematically means they want to cut benefits. And they understand it's got to be on the high end. But then when you talk to them about, OK, to make up these benefit cuts, we have to make sure, you know, every worker is offered a retirement plan on the job. We have to sign them up for it. They say, well, we don't like mandates. I'm like, well, you know, payroll tax increases are a mandate, too. And that's what you're going to get if you don't act to make sure everybody is saving enough for retirement on their own. It's a solvable problem on paper, but these sort of political peculiarities that we have make it in practice a really tough issue to get on top of. So is, is the end game, is it, does the end game require a market reaction or can we do something before markets react like a serious, you know, advanced economy, you know, first world nation. Right. Right now on the public policy front, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I mean, it's President Biden has been talking about Social Security a fair bit, you know, starting with the State of the Union, he's con in his announcement for re-election, he focused on Social Security. But it, to be frank, it's it's just being used as a political club. They they realize it's an effective stick to hit the, the congressional Republicans with. And so I don't think there's policy seriousness. You see the same thing on the Republican side. You know, former President Trump has been beating up over Governor DeSantis, over DeSantis in the past, wanting to, you know, hold the line on, on benefits, you know, which in effect lets you prevent tax increases, which you would think would be a conservative position, but that's been successful. So, you know, both of them are, are taking a kind of a populist, you know, very political standpoint, I'll, I'll say. But that does literally nothing to fix the problem. And it, it makes the it makes the problem worse to, to harder effects because now congressional Republicans who previously wanted to reform Social Security, they don't know what to do. They don't want to raise taxes. They don't want to offend Donald Trump. What do you do? The answer is you do nothing. And it just gets tougher and tougher. So, you know, maybe some wild card happens the next presidential election. We get somebody who's serious about this. But, you know, we're we're getting closer to the date when you really have to resolve this. And, you know, this is like the Titanic. It doesn't turn on a dime. So it's really nice to get on top of it early. Andrew, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Always great stuff. 